Good to see you here. Maybe some of you, you know, if they would have put my name in the bulletin that I was speaking tonight, you would not have shown up. I always appreciate the folks like at Indianola. I was there this morning and they knew I was coming and they showed up anyway. So that's always a blessing. I find our theme for the year an interesting theme as it focuses on the church. In fact, there's a phrase in the verses that we are focusing on. It talks about, to him be glory in the church. I love the church. I'm concerned for the church. Folks, it's, it's all that God is using in our day and age in which we live. In this church age is the church. That's his organization. And so I appreciate these messages that have been emphasizing the importance of the church. And as I thought about it, I, I, I wonder why. Why is the church so important that we decided as a church to make that our theme for the year as we had communion every Sunday night and that's changed and we're kind of looking at it a little differently. But why is the church so important? A quick overview of the New Testament gives us some idea. In Ephesians 5.23, it points to Christ as being the head of the church. And if Jesus Christ is the head, that must be important, the body that he has. In Ephesians 5.25, it says Christ loved the church and gave himself for it. That's how important it is to him. Colossians 1.18 tells us, and he, referring to Christ, is the head of the body, the church. And in Colossians 1.24, uh, Paul is saying as he is partaking in Christ's sufferings, were for the sake of the body, his church. And so we see the emphasis in the New Testament is that the local church is important because it's related to Christ. He's the head, we're the body. And that makes it important. That makes it worthy of study, worthy of understanding, worthy of being a part of. And, and as you study the New Testament, one thing I find is I don't find any Christians wandering around without belonging to a local church somewhere, a body of Christ. In our culture today, we've lost some of the importance of that, but that's another message. The importance of the church is also, I believe, drawn from the New Testament in the fact that God gave gifts to the church. I don't know about you, but you know, I like to give gifts to individuals who are important to me. And my grandchildren every year always present a long list. They give it to grandma because they know she knows what to get. But we like to give gifts to the things and the people that we love. And God has given gifts to the church. And in 1 Corinthians 14.5, it tells us that those gifts were given to the church to edify or build up the church. And to edify and build up the folks who make up the church. 
so that they may strive to excel in building up the church. God is telling us this is important. The definitive pas uh, passage in the New Testament on the gifts to the church is Ephesians 4, 11, and 12, I believe. And he gave the apostles and the prophets and the evangelists and the shepherds and the teachers to equip the saints for the work of the ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ. Remember, that's the church. So he's giving gifts to the church so they can be exercised in the church to edify and build up the church because it's important. My task tonight is I want to look at one of those gifts. I want to look at the gift of pastor. I want to talk about who this person is and what are the expectations from Scripture for this person. And Scripture tells us that, and we're given some places where there's insight, I believe, in two passages of Scripture. You can turn to them. You know what they are. 1 Timothy chapter 3 and Titus chapter 1. In fact, how many of you have heard a message on those chapters before? Two messages, three messages, a whole bass of more than you can count. I think we could all raise our hands because these are, I mean, most churches I see, you know, when they have deacon elections, man, those, those you know, they dust those passages off and they come out and, and we look at it. And so we're familiar with the passages and I think sometimes that that builds a barrier maybe to seeing some things that we need to see. And so what I want to do tonight is I just want to quickly cover what those passages point out because they are in Scripture, they are inspired, and they're always worthy of another look. And then I want to just maybe make some applications that maybe you haven't thought of before in some practical ways about how these verses relate to not only the gift of the pastor to the church, but my response to that, my responsibility to do that. In these two passages in 1 Timothy 3 and Titus chapter 1, we have what most call the qualifications. What is God looking for? What is God's expectations and, and God's standard? And if we're going to read both of them in a minute, they're not very long, but as we read to them, we find some different words used. We find the word pastor used, and we find the word elder used, and we find the word bishop used, or shepherd. And we could spend several hours together going through all of those, but I'm just simply going to say tonight, I believe they all refer to the same person. As my, in my study of Scripture over the years, that's the conclusion that I've come to. And I know there are some out there practicing other things. That's the way they see it. I, I think these are all the same individual. And there are the, each word emphasizes a different part of the responsibilities and for lack of a better term, the job that we see the Word of God has given 
for the pastor to do. So if you have your Bibles in 1 Timothy chapter 3, let's read starting at verse 1. The saying is trustworthy. If any man aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, apt to teach, not a drunkard, nor violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his own household well with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? He must not be a recent convert, or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders so that he may not fall into disgrace and to the snare of the devil. If you want to just turn over a few pages to Titus chapter 1, beginning with verse 5, you're going to see some similarities in these passages. And... um, Titus chapter 1, beginning with verse 5, he is writing to Titus, This is why I left you in Crete, so that you may put what remain into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. If anyone is above reproach, the husband of one wife, and his children are believers and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination, for an overseer as God's steward must be above reproach. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or a drunkard or violent or greedy for gain, but hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also rebuke those who contradict it. Wow, there's a lot there. And, And... And we learn a lot of things, but let's just kind of look at this a little bit. And we're going to go back to the 1 Timothy 3 passage in chapter 1 and look at how it starts out. If any man desire the office of bishop. That says something important right there. That tells me that a pastor of a church has to be a male. And probably not just any male, but one that God has called forth to be the pastor of the church. And the next phrase there, aspires or desires the office of pastor. That first word is one that's rarely used in the New Testament. And it's a word that pictures someone straining their neck to see something. You ever been behind a tall person at a parade? And you're, the flow with your grandkid is coming by and you're doing like this to try to... That's the word. If a man is aspiring to do that, the idea here is that this is a Holy Spirit-compelled desire. It's something that is important. If he aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a good thing. That's a a different word. And that word talks about a compassionate compulsion. He is driven by love. And the two words together 
picture a man who is outwardly pursuing something because of an inward compulsion. He is seeking this because he has to. Because God is directing him. God is compelling him. The Holy Spirit is stirring him. Not just because someone said, hey, you know, you'd be a good pastor. And I think that tells us that, you know, that, that narrows down the, 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 the circle of, that we can choose from a lot. But these are important ideas. So from, from this initial compelling, we move to some of the requirements that God gives. The main requirement in verse 2 is that he be above reproach. Blameless. That does not mean perfect. And I think sometimes, you know, we forget that. I know Pastor Josh. He's not perfect. If you don't believe it, ask Krista. Or ask his kids. He's not perfect. None of us are. God doesn't expect perfection. That's not what this is saying, though I have heard it used at times. Well, you're not supposed to be able to do these kinds of things. That's not what it says. Basically, the idea is that there's nothing that you have that you can hold against him. And if something comes up, it's cleared up. It's dealt with. There's no ongoing issue that, has be, that becomes a reputation to this individual. That's the main requirement. That's followed by next by the marital requirement. The husband of one wife. Now, if someone in talking about the church doesn't understand when it talks about it must be a man here, how can a woman be the husband of one wife? According to the scriptural definition of marriage, that's the one we're going off of. They can't. So I believe this restricts the office to someone who is a male, a man. I also don't think this is saying that a pastor must be married. There are some who take that. But that if he is married, he's only married to one wife. And remember, they were in a culture where polygamy was a problem. And so it was addressing that problem. Weist, who is a Greek scholar of far greater knowledge of the Greek language than I, he says this word pictures a one-woman sort of man. And there are some all kinds of discussions off of that. I personally believe, and it's another whole message, and I'm not going to go there, that it's someone who's not divorced. That's just my interpretation of this passage. But let me add this. There are many, many men who are married to one woman who are not a one-woman man. Their eyes are wondering. In fact, 
that's probably the greatest single reason men leave the ministry or are disqualified from the ministries because of that. See, God always looks a little deeper than what we appear to on the surface. And we need to understand that. We need to grasp that. I like what one writer said. Failure to be a one-woman man has caused more men to leave the pastorate than anything else he knows of, and that's true. So we have the main requirement, we have a marital requirement, we have some moral requirements. Sober-minded or vigilant, one who thinks clearly or possesses self-control. Literally, it means wineless. I'm not going to go there. That's another whole message. But I think that's a good place to be. Wineless. Self-controlled or prudent or well-disciplined is another word. One who knows how to order priorities and one who sees the world through God's lenses. I think that's important. I mean, I would want a pastor who understands the events of 2020 through God's perspective that God is still in control, that we shouldn't live in fear, that we need to respect and honor those who are making decisions and obey the laws, but understand that, that God is still on the throne. He needs to see the culture and the world through the eyes and the lens of God. Talks about one who is respectable, one whose life is not in chaos. It may be chaotic at times. I mean, it's got to be with twin boys, you know? But overall, there is an order. And there is a purpose and there is a plan. One who has an orderly outlook on all that comes into his life. There are some ministerial requirements. Timothy Paul goes on to write, hospitable, given to hospitality, or literally a lover of strangers. You'd, if, you, if you could see the word, you would recognize phileo in the part of it. That's a brotherly love. And then the second word is, is talking about love, a, brother, one who, a stranger, the one who loves strangers, who sees hospitality as a delight, not a duty. That's why the help meet is so important. Apt to teach. Interesting phrase. It talks about a skillfulness. A skillfulness in teaching the word of God. And this is more than just having an intellectual content. This is an, an aptness that is a reflecting of a time spent in the presence of God getting and gleaning what God have us to glean from the passage. Someone who has poured over a passage that is evident in their preaching. One author says, you know, it's, it's a combination of teaching skills and Holy Spirit-led teaching. 
And a pastor must be skilled in all levels. They need to be able to teach the word of God. And it's interesting, as you begin to look at these, you begin to see some things weaving together here. I mean, think about this whole idea of teaching. Effective teaching is woven into a man's moral character. What a man is cannot be divorced from what he says. And that's why this aptness to teaching is so important and why these other characteristics are given because out of that grows apt teaching. And I think that's why Paul, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, lists some of the things that he's listing because he understands these are key to what the heart and what comes out in the mouth and the teaching. Paul looks a little broader as he moves on through these passages, especially 1 Timothy 3, and looks to some of the pastor's attachments. What is he attached to? Well, he wants to have a pa- one who is not addicted to wine, not addicted to wrath, that's the not a drunkard and not a striker, and not addicted to wealth, not a lover of money. Those are not things that drive and motivate and become gods in his life. Because those are distractions from being motivated and addicted to what God has for us and to God in His Word. Paul looks to not only his attachments, but his attitudes. Not caloric or has a patient attitude, a gentleness, a fairness, a reasonableness. He's not contentious. He's not always able, you know, jumping on everybody that disagrees with him, but he's listening and he's thinking and he's wanting to season his speech with a gentleness and a kindness. He's not one who is walking around sometimes with a chip on his shoulder. You disagree with me? All right, I'll show you. You know, I'll just out-argue you. God says, that's not the kind of man we want. In verses 4 and 5 in 1 Timothy, it looks to his attainments. Going back to manages his house well, or he parents with gravity, with seriousness. And and that next phrase in verse 5 is very interesting. Not a recent convert or or uh, not a novice, as some translations say. And of all of these words through there, this one is an emphatic command. I mean, it kind of stands out. In its importance. The word novice is an interesting word. It, it, It springs up from... Two terms meaning new and sprung up. Someone who is not newly sprung up. Someone who is not a novice. Why? Well, it says, lest he be puffed up. Man, look at me. I've only been, you know, saved a short period of time. And look at the people I can teach and preach and influence. And Satan wants to do that because he knows it will lead to a destruction in a ministry. 
And the word picture here is very interesting. The idea of not a one to be lifted up, and that's the idea of to raise a smoke. One who is not raising a smoke. You, I was listening to the radio today, and someone was saying that north of Grimes there, there was a lot of smoke coming up, and they figured out some chicken farm was on fire. So if they have, somebody has roasted chicken on sale tomorrow, you better beware. But, but the idea was the smoke draws attention to itself, but has no real substance. That's the idea of a novice. We don't want someone who draws attention to himself, but there's nothing there. God isn't doing anything. We are one who has a good report from without. We can say a lot of things about the world, but I'll tell you one thing I've learned about the world over time is they're quick to spot a phony. And they may see someone as a phony quicker than his own people will. And it's important that the man who is a pastor is not a phony. And as I look at all that, I'm saying, wow, you know, that's, that's a long overview. A long review, and I haven't even dealt with the Titus passage, but I just wanted to remind us of what some of these words are and what some of these traits are and what some of these things are, but I want us to now think in maybe just a little different way, we often listen to this portion taught and we think about the pastor of the church where we are. And we no doubt think about some areas that maybe our guy could do a little better. Do you do that when this pastor, this passage is preached? Well, you know, yeah, well, he could do a little better here. He could do a little better there. Or, yeah, you know, the pastor needs to do this, and he needs to be like that. Let me ask you a question. I want you to listen carefully to this question. Does anyone here not think God doesn't want each and every one of us like that? I mean, he may not give all of us the compunction to be a pastor, but I think the moral characteristics and the, the attitudes and the attributes, I don't think that there's any excuse for all of us not to be striving for those and wanting to become that, because that's Christ-likeness. And as this passage is preached, we are quick to think, well, what about my pastor? And maybe we ought to be quick to think, hey, what about me? What about me? Again, we're not perfect. Our pastor is not perfect. But I think these are great things for us to be ascribing to in our life and asking God to help us to be in our life. So that should He, through the working of the Holy Spirit, create in us an intense desire to be a vocational pastor, we are qualified. Now we're ready. We need to be ready to go. We need to be this kind of a person. And I think that's a good place to go with this. I really do. I think God wants every believer to be the person he's just described. 
He wants everyone to be a one-woman man. Every believer should be sober-minded and patient and not a hothead or a brawler. And we could go right back through the list. And we could find other places in Scripture where you know, we are seeing these attributes and qualities applied to everyone. So my challenge is to you, as you think about this tonight, and maybe as you read through this passage, or in the future if you hear 10 or 20 or 30 more messages on it in your lifetime, that your first thought is not looking at the guy in the pulpit, but looking at the guy in the pew, the guy in the mirror. And asking instead of, God, where should my pastor spruce it up a little bit? Maybe it's be, God, where should I spruce it up a little bit? I think it's important. And I think it's there. And I don't find the exception. None of us, as I've said before, even pastor, any pastor, not even Paul. What did Paul say about himself? I mean, this guy was an apostle. And he says, I'm the chiefest of sinners. He realized he needed sprucing up. He was not perfect. He had a way to go. And I believe he is telling us the same thing. Let us understand that God is not finished molding and conforming our pastor into the image of his son that he wants, but he's not finished with any of us either. And I think if we want to think in the larger context of the church... There's a whole lot of sprucing up that all of us need to do to be the church that God wants and to have the pastor that God wants us to have and to be the sheep that God wants us to be. And I, I just pray that as we look at this, we, we think those things. Another question is, how can we individually and as a church encourage our pastor as he does this? I mean, he has, I believe, that, that inner spirit-driven compulsion to be a shepherd to a flock. How can we help him? How can we encourage him? We understand he's not perfect, but... but we, we see the hand of God in his life and in the life of his family. And what can we do? Well, we can pray. We can pray. And we can pray. And I could go on for the remainder of the night and say the same thing. But I think it's important that we pray for our pastor and his family. And we can do that. It's not easy being a shepherd to a flock of dirty, stubborn, self-willed sheep. Now maybe that's not you, but it sure is me. And we need to pray for our pastor. We need to be striving to become the flock that God wants us to be. 
And, and I'd like to remind you, and you, you talk to churches, and they go, yeah, but we called him. And I always like to remind them, yes, but he said yes. And he didn't have to. We need to be an encouragement. We need to pray. We need to appreciate the fact that he felt the calling and leading of God to be our pastor. He didn't have to say yes, but he did. And we need to understand that Scripture tells us that as our shepherd, God is going to make him give an account to how he shepherds us. And you may not think he's doing something right or wrong or whatever, and I just encourage you to pray about that or whatever, but realize, you know, that ultimately... God is going to be the one who does the accounting. God also is going to hold us accountable for the kind of sheep that we are. How well we're going to be held accountable for how well we allowed him to shepherd us. Now think about that. I mean, that's, that's pretty awesome. And I don't mean a good awesome. I mean probably a little fearful awesome. You mean God's going to hold me accountable for how good a sheep I was? Yes, he is. And how well we followed the shepherd that God brought to our flock. And hopefully through our calling, we understand that and recognize that, that this is the man that God has to lead our congregation and shepherd our flock. And if that's the case, then we need to look at that and understand that we need to be careful. We need to be good sheep. Our desire ought to be to be a blessing and not a burden. We ought to lift him up, not tear him down. Again, he's not perfect. And Scripture says a lot about, you know, dealing with an elder and bringing a rebuke to a pastor and, and, and how carefully it needs to be done, but we need, we need to be building him up. There's something else I thought about here. We talked earlier about the apt-to-teach part. You're saying, well, how, how can we help with that? I'm glad you asked. The idea here that apt to teach pictures a continual learning process. And we need to give our pastor opportunities to be continually learning. Now that doesn't mean we just give him, you know, well, I, okay, I won't call in the morning every morning and, and ask him how his day was. I'll let him study the Bible. And that's part of it, but... We also need, I believe as a people, if we want him to be the shepherd that God wants him to be, we need to give him those opportunities to be challenged intellectually and be taught by those who are experts in Scripture in their area of study and allow them to take classes and, and, and seminars and things like that. I think it's important. And we as a congregation, I pray we, we're understanding about that. It's important. We need to allow him to be challenged by men who have spent their life 
studying scripture and have a gift to teach others. It helps him. And that helps us. And as I've told him, you know, Dr. Robinson sounds awfully good. I hope that's your attitude because his desire is to be apt to teach. And as he pursues those avenues, we ought to be encouraging him and be understanding if, if you know, if he's, if he's studying something really deep and tough and, and maybe is not up to a second message a week that we can put up with a substitute. And we understand that. And not see that as well. What are we paying him for anyway? I, I mean, that attitude is out there. I've seen it in other churches. I think we want to be a blessing in that area, apt to teach. One more. I thought about not a lover of money or, or someone who is greedy. And my prayer is that as a church, we always compensate our pastor to the point that that is never a temptation or a need. And we need to be generous. And we need to be thoughtful. And we need to be understanding. And we need to give sacrificially. And I understand we can, you know, we can only pay so much. But we need to never have a pastor in a position to where it becomes a crunch to do the things that you and I do. Just some thoughts that I had on that. As I was studying for this, God laid upon my heart some chapters in 2 Timothy where he talks about, or where Paul uses in two, cha in two chapters seven different figures to depict a faithful pastor. And I'm going to be honest with you, I just got tired reading them. Here they are. Are you ready? Hold on to your seat. 2 Timothy 2, 2, they are teachers. And if you do any teaching, especially the little ones, that's hard work. It's tiring. 2 Timothy 2, 3, and 4, they are soldiers on active duty. If you've been there and done that, you know that's not a cakewalk either. 2 Timothy 2.5, they are athletes who compete according to the rules. And if you've played any sports, you know, you know, the running up and down the hill in football, up and down the stadium, up and down the court. It's hard work. 2 Timothy 2.6, they are hardworking farmers. If you think all they do is ride around on an air-conditioned tractor all day, go spend a day with one. Put on the rubber boots and help them shovel things that most of us don't enjoy shoveling. It's hard work being a farmer. 2 Timothy 2.15, they are approved or careful workers. Working hard and giving it their all for the one who they are accountable, their employer, in this case, God. 2 Timothy 2, 20 and 21, they are useful vessels of honor. And 2 Timothy 2, 24, they are servants. And if you've ever been a waiter, I think everybody in their life at some point in time ought to be a waiter 
for one year. It's hard work. Pleasing, you know, however many different people every day you have to try to please. And getting the things, anticipating, it's hard work. But those are the, the visual pictures that Paul gives young Timothy under the inspiration of spirit to describe the ministry he was to have as a pastor and it's applicable to every pastor of every age. And then Timothy gives them a charge in 2 Timothy 4, 1 and 2. Preach the Word. All of this character traits, all of this study, everything that God has poured into this man is going to come out when he preaches the Word. He is to be instant or persevere. He's to hang in there. I preached this morning in, in Indianola and I've been going through a series on Jeremiah. Hey, I want to call you to preach to people, but they're going to reject your message. Anybody want to sign up for that? They're going to hate you for it. You want to sign up for that? Jeremiah persevered. He was instant. Every time God has a message, he was there with it. Giving it to the people. Even at the end of chapter 18, when they got together, they said, we're going to kill this guy. We don't like his message. He didn't back down. Pastors to preach. He's to persevere. And here's the one. Here's the hard one. He's to probe, rebuke, reprove, exhort. He's to know the sheep. He's to probe, the, to probe them when, when things are not going well and he sees things that don't line up with Scripture. That's hard to sit down with someone with tears and a heavy heart and look them in the eye and say, I'm concerned about this in your life. That's what God's called them to do. That is the gift of a pastor to a church. Let's pray. Father, we thank you this evening for your gifts to the church. We thank you for the gift of pastor because we, like sheep, need a shepherd. And even though the Lord Jesus is the head of the church, he has appointed under shepherds to help each local flock that is serving him. And Father, as we've looked at these passages tonight, may we look at them from a perspective of how we can be a blessing and an encouragement. And maybe not just to point the finger at our pastor, but to realize too that we are to be this ourselves in this body in which we find ourselves. Father, help us understand that it is not an accident that this congregation consists of each and every individual it consists of right now. And it's not an accident that we have the pastor that we have. And Father, just help us to be 
a body here in Altoona, Iowa that brings honor and glory to you. And the way that we minister with our pastor and to our pastor. Father, this is your church. And this church is more important than any individual that makes it up. It's yours. And may our desire in our hearts and our motivation be to be a joy and to be a blessing so that you can get the honor and glory of all that is done here. For Jesus' sake and in his name we pray. Amen.